because my relationship with Hashem is strong, my own personal relationship, I don't feel anymore that these people represent that relationship, right? Meaning other people who have been raised on Das Torah or raised on that rabbis represent God, I think have a harder time because they can't separate between the rabbi and God. I can, I do. It's the only way I can continue. For me, as much as I do have respect and covered for rabbinic figures, they don't represent God to me. And so when I'm disappointed by one, I'm disappointed in this person, but I'm not disappointed in Hashem. And I think that's the only thing that's really kept me going and enabled me to say things can be better. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I've always felt that there is a special sadness that accompanies the feeling of disappointment. That when someone's illusions are shattered, when you expected something great or magical and it doesn't happen, that a piece of innocence is irretrievably lost. I'm going to tell a silly story, and I'm frankly a bit embarrassed to repeat it. You might think that it wasn't even worth recounting, But I'll do it anyway because it represented something to me, which, when translated into things that actually matter, symbolizes that loss of innocence. When a child in our family lost a tooth, we would do the tooth fairy thing, meaning we would recommend that our child write a note to the tooth fairy, and the next morning, there would be a note back to the child from the tooth fairy, along with five or ten shekels. One time a while back, my daughter lost her tooth, wrote a note, and put it along with her tooth under her pillow. And she was young enough to believe this fantasy rather than to just have fun with it. And I'm embarrassed to say, that night, I forgot to write the note. I'm the tooth fairy. And I forgot the money. I just forgot about it. And I'll never forget when my daughter woke up in the morning, she came into our room and told me and Eliza, she didn't come. As I said, it's just a little story. It's nothing really important. But if I'm being completely honest... I'm a little bit haunted by that moment. When she said about the tooth fairy, she didn't come, my heart broke. A little piece of childhood fantasy was gone. As we get older, we have much more serious disappointments. People sometimes don't come through. Sometimes God doesn't come through. Chazal tell us in Masechet Brachot, I'm a Rabbi Hanina, Kol ha-ma'arich b'tfilato, ain't tfilato chozeret rekam. Anyone who lengthens his davening, his davening does not come back empty. Ini, is this true? V'ha amar Rabbi Chia bar Abba, amar Rabbi Yochanan, kol hamarich b'tfilato u'me'ayen ba, sof bali dekev lev. Anyone who lengthens his tefillah and investigates it, he will come to heart sickness. The Gemara concludes, lo kasha, it's not actually a contradiction. Ha demarich u'me'ayen ba, ha demarich v'lo me'ayen ba. A person comes to heart sickness when he lengthens his tefillah and also investigates it. A person's tefillah is not returned empty-handed when he lengthens it but does not investigate it. Rashi explains that investigate it means that a person expects that God will answer because he or she davened for so long. So if a person davens really long and believes that as a result he or she has bent God to his will, that's a good sign that God's going to say no to the tefillah. At the same time, let's think about the perspective of someone who does this, 
who really believes that if he or she davens really long with a lot of kavana, God will listen. God will answer yes. This person has simple faith in God, that if I ask him, really strongly ask him, he's got to say yes. And in the end, God often says no, or more to the point, God is silent. I remember in 1994, I was studying in Yeshiva in Yerushalayim when a soldier named Nachshon Waxman was kidnapped by terrorists. The terrorists, members of Hamas, disguised themselves by wearing kippot and playing Jewish music and picked him up as a hitchhiker. They soon released a hostage video where Nachshon said that he would be executed on Friday night unless Israel released 200 terrorists and the leader of Hamas, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin Yimachshmo. The situation became international news 100,000 people davened at the Kotel. His mother asked women all over the world to light an extra Shabbat candle for Nachshon that Friday night, and many did. There were rumors that Hamas was feeling the pressure. And I remember saying to a friend of mine, it will be such a Kiddush Hashem when he's released. Tragically, he was not released. The Israeli army tried to save him that Friday night. My roommate and I actually heard the military ambulances drive by our window. And Nachshon Waxman was killed by the terrorists. The leader of the Sayeret Matkal team, near Poraz, was also killed, and nine of the Israeli commandos were wounded. Hashem was silent. And whenever I think of that Gemara, about expecting God to answer our prayers because we daven so much, I think back to that Friday night, before we heard the terrible news. And what about Avraham Avinu? What did Avraham think the morning after his prayer for the people of Stom? That prayer where he asked God to save the city if there were 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, or 10 righteous people. The next morning, the Torah tells us, he looked out over the plain and he saw the city completely destroyed, smoking like a furnace. Yet Chazal also tell us that the source for Shacharit, the morning prayer, is not the initial prayer of Abraham, where he asked for the salvation of the people. The source of Shacharit is the next morning when he saw that his prayer had failed. Somehow, when we're disappointed, when God doesn't come through, and we pick ourselves up to pray again despite seeing our illusions shattered. That's real faith, and that's the source of Shacharit. Not the prayer where God directly interacted with Avraham. The prayer afterwards, when God was silent, where there's no record of God acknowledging Avraham's prayer. That's the prayer that we learn from. It's one thing to get back up when God is silent, but it's an altogether different experience to put our trust in people, to think of them as stand-ins for God, and have them fail us as well. Perhaps we can excuse God, who is known as Kelmistater, a God who hides. But people, great rabbis, for example, are supposed to fill the void. That's our job, after all. And they're supposed to be the best at it. My all-time favorite Hasidic story is about the Kutzker Rebbe. He was once approached by somebody who asked him, Rebbe, why is the world so ugly? Couldn't God have made a more beautiful world? The Kutzker Rebbe looked into his eyes and said to him, What, you think you could do a better job? And the Hasid thought for a moment and then slowly said, Yeah, I do. So the Kutzker Rebbe said back to him, So what are you waiting for? Our role is to do the work that God doesn't finish. He's waiting for us to do that. Our job is to bring the divine into the world where he is otherwise absent. And our gedolim, our great sages, are often presented, and sometimes present themselves, as the people who lead this God-centered charge. The problem occurs when they fail in their self-appointed mission or community-appointed role. 
Because once again, we're setting ourselves up to be disappointed when we make rabbinic leaders, or anyone, the exclusive representatives of what Torah Judaism is. Yes, there are great halachic scholars, but that sadly does not necessarily mean they're always great human beings or even great exemplars of what Torah is. People are inevitably fallible, and when we put our faith in people, we are likely to experience disappointment, disillusionment, and dejection. It can lead to a crisis of faith. And a good example of that is the experience of Shoshana Keats Jaskal, who became an activist as a direct result of the failure of great rabbis to do what's right. And we're going to talk about her experience today. Before we begin the conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, read The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. I'm also excited to let you know that this episode will be available on YouTube as well, so go to the Orthodox Conundrum page there to watch our conversation. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting gets more popular every day, and that means that there are two important pieces of information you need to have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that wants to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. Shoshana Keats Jaskol was born and raised in Lakewood, New Jersey. A writer, her work on Judaism and Israel can be seen in the Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, Tablet, The Jewish Chronicle, and The Forward. Co-founder of Chochmat Nashim, an organization dedicated to fighting extremism and raising the voices of women, she writes, speaks, and creates campaigns to change policy and communal behavior for a healthier, more balanced Orthodox Judaism. Shoshana Keats Jaskal, thank you very much for joining me again on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's my pleasure, Scott. I often refer back to the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes, and people sometimes blind themselves because of our own insecurities, because of our own desires, because of our own desire to have certain heroes to what's really going on and what should be, if we're really honest with ourselves, readily apparent. And Shoshana, when we are honest with ourselves, there are times that we discover that some of the people that we've put up on a pedestal maybe don't belong there. In fact, they might disappoint us in many ways. That's not to say that there aren't genuine heroes. That's not to say that there aren't people who really do belong on that pedestal. Behind me, I have a bookshelf with people whom I respect so much. I call them the heroes of Torah Judaism. And I've met some of them myself. I have some of my own rabbeim whom I consider to be true heroes, people who are amazing exemplars of what Torah Judaism is meant to be. In fact, last week, I had an interview with four distinguished women about their Rebbe, Rav Moshe Kanzatzal, and from everything that they said and from what people who contacted me afterwards said, he seems like one of those heroes as well. Let's not turn this into there are no leaders. That's not what we mean. What we are talking about is when that's not the case, when people we thought were our heroes turn out to be something less than that. 
I'm not only speaking about her, I'm not even speaking at all about the well-known cases like Mattia Lone or Chaim Walder, who had dramatic falls from grace. I'm speaking about people who may not have done anything criminal or maybe not anything wrong per se, but turned out to lack the courage or lack some of the attributes that we assume that they have. Maybe we found out that certain people, certain leaders, were not the repositories of wisdom and courage that we anticipated. So, Shoshana, with that in mind, my job today, after that long-winded introduction, is primarily to let you tell your story about how disappointment and disillusionment with certain rabbis created a type of crisis, a crisis in faith, perhaps, and how you chose to proceed. So let's start at the beginning, because you're an activist. You run Chochmat Nashim. You have a marvelous podcast called Chochmat Nashim. That wasn't your original plan, is that right? Very much not. (laughs) Very much not, yeah. It's funny that you say um, the Emperor's New Clothes because I actually think of that a lot. And the other um, parable I think of is the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. Like at the end of the day, she does this entire journey and she, you know, for The Wizard of Oz, for anyone who has not seen this film, you should go and see this film. But um, at the end, she pulls back that curtain, spoiler alert, and it's this little, little man who has been running the show with his snobs and whatever, but he's he's just this little man who is not the all and mighty odds. And I think that, you know, your introduction is very true. And I, and I in my own story, I will say, of course, there are heroes, of course. And if, if there weren't heroes, I wouldn't still be here. Um, but unfortunately, as you said, there's a lot of disappointment in the people we expect more from. And I think that really is where why I've become who I am and why I do what I do. You know, as you mentioned, it's not where I thought I would be. I have a degree in environmental studies from Rutgers University. I thought I would be cleaning up the mountains and the streams of our beautiful country. It's funny. I told this to someone a few years ago. And they're like, they're st- you're still cleaning up our environment, just in a different way. <laughs> a different environment. So that was very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up in Lakewood, New Jersey. Lakewood, New Jersey. Not the Lakewood was- we know now, right? Not the Lakewood we know now. Before it was Brooklyn. It was a pastoral, beautiful uh, town where there were all types of Jews, right? We, there was a Reformed a synagogue and a conservative synagogue and modern Orthodox school. And so I went to the modern Orthodox day school, which I think is now a base Vega or something. And in the modern day, you know, the modern Orthodox day school, we had an yeshiva teachers, like, what, you know, yeshiva wives, we call them kolo wives, uh, of their their husbands were learning in Beit uh, Medrashkavua, which was down the street, and they would uh, teach us. And so I knew women with shaitals and I knew rabbis who were, I guess today we'd call them Haredi, though we didn't know that word back then. Rav Kotler Zatzal would speak Yiddish to my mom and my mom's in jeans and he's in his full garb and we were just all Jews. And did everyone get along? As far as you saw? As far as I saw, there there were no issues, meaning everyone said good Shabbos to each other. Didn't matter if you had something in your hair, covering your hair, not covering your hair. We were all Jews. That is the Lakewood. That is Judaism that I grew up knowing. I wasn't from. Uh, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and they came over when if you didn't work seven days a week, you lost your kids. You know, I mean, that's what happened. My grandfather was, um, he, he learned in the Yeshiva of Lublin. He knew he could starve of Amara, but in the end of the day, he worked on Shabbos because they were going to take his daughter away from him. Um, and so, and I think also losing your children in the war, which both of my grandparents did, also changes you a bit. But in any case, they weren't religious and my mother didn't, my mother wasn't religious. My father wasn't religious. I grew up knowing about uh, Judaism being in the day school, but not in a religious home, let's say. Kosher and all that, but I don't know. It's a mix that you don't really find anymore today. Point being, my Judaism was one where everyone loved and respected each other, even if you didn't do the same thing. Okay? And there was no such thing as there is now in Lakewood, which is 
I, I honestly can't go back to Lakewood. It's actually painful for me. But skipping forward, when I made Aliyah for the third time, and that's another story. You can made Aliyah for the third time. Podcast, okay. <laughs> the third time. I made Aliyah to Bichemish. And what year was that? In 2007. Okay. 15 years I've been here. And as you know, Scott, you know, we live in the same neighborhood. Ramat Bay Shemesh of 15 years ago was not Ramat Bay Shemesh of now. And I started to see things and started to um, experience things that made me think, what the heck is happening here? Um, you know, my Aliyah glasses started to get a little bit less rosy. You know, you just like get over, oh my God, everything's in Hebrew. It's so exciting. And the mail doesn't come on Shabbos. <laughs> All that stuff starts to fade a little bit when like realities of life come in, or at least it's balanced. Um and I started to see women and girls, images of women and girls disappearing from all the circulars that came to my home, from the uh, health clinics that I would take my kids. My daughters came back from school one day and told me that they were put in the back of the bus because they were girls, or they were told to go to the back of the bus. They didn't, of course, because they're my daughters. Um, but but these things were happening in my home and to my kids. Let me ask you a question about that. And this is my own fault. In 2007, I wasn't really thinking about these things. Did it change or was it like that? And you started noticing it? Had it been like that before? Because I know what you say that Ramat Shemesh today is not the Ramat Shemesh of 2007, but the Ramat Shemesh of 2007 also wasn't the Ramat Shemesh of 2000. And I moved here in 1999. I can attest that in those eight years before you got here, things did change even in some ways dramatically from when I first moved here. My question is, was it that you became aware of changes that were already happening or was there a significant shift that made it even worse? I think both, meaning, let me put it like this. When I got here, there were still women or girls in certain situations in pictures. Um, and then they started blurring them, right? And then they just took them out completely. So it definitely was a gradual thing. It definitely slid to the right very quickly. Um, and yes, it did change and it got worse. And then what happened was... Because 2007, that's the year before Abupo became mayor. Is that correct? If I'm trying to think of my timeline, I think that was still when there was a secular mayor when you arrived here. A year later, we had a Haredi mayor. But you know that the mayor is not someone very much in charge of the city. I know, but it also (laughs) reflects how the city is going. The fact that it had had a secular mayor, a guy who did not wear a kippah, to a guy who was a Haredi guy who now is part of the Shas party in the Knesset. That tells you something. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Well, the population started to change. And look, I'd mentioned my grandparents were survivors. And I think it's really important to say that they taught me that worse than the Germans were the Poles because they stood by and did nothing and they were their neighbors. And it always stuck with me. I I don't want to say it consciously stuck with me because I don't know how you can analyze yourself at that moment. But looking back, I can tell you that for me, I'm just I simply can't stand by when I see something happening. It's not in my blood. And so when this all started to happen, and then we had that massive issue in Orod Bonot, which just to review quickly, because that's a whole story in and of itself, there was a school and the people, the extremists who moved in next to the school, by the way, after the school was already being built, decided they didn't want the school there. And they harassed terribly the girls and their parents and the teachers. It was terrible, horrible. And I went there. You know, I, didn't, I did not have girls in that school. I didn't have kids in the school, but I went down there because I was like, what's happening here? What's going on? That was probably about 2010. Is that right? I'm just trying to get my timeline straight. 10-11, yeah. And they're screaming in Yiddish, my, the beautiful language of my grandparents, right? For me, it's very special. And they're screaming shiksa and pritzas at little girls. And that me, I was they spit on me. It was a horrible time. I remember it well. It was awful. Horrible. And I think, you know, but 
Scott, you, you you said like sometimes we don't we don't until it's in our face until it happens to us we don't really want to believe it. And I started writing about what I was seeing because I was shocked and appalled. And I thought for sure people are going to stand against this. Like no one's gonna. This is not okay. This is not Judaism. And I thought we would get rid of these guys. And what I was met with was very surprising. A lot of oh you're making a big deal out of nothing. It's just some extremists live and let live. I was just like what is happening here? Who are, what? Where are our people? Um, and I should say that at the same time that this was going on in our neighborhood, in our community, my aunt was trying to get a get from her husband who had been, she, she lived in Muncie and he had lived in Muncie, but he was deported after he was in jail because he was originally British. And like all good Jewish criminals came to Israel. And so um, she needed my help because she was in Muncie raising five kids and I was here in Israel. And she said, you know, could you help me get your get? I had no, my get, I had no idea what she's talking about. Like get your get what? But she put me in touch with her. To- what do you mean? It- what was she asking you to do? Right. Exactly. I didn't know until she said, could you speak to this woman who's my representative in the rabbinic court in the Beit Deen? So I said, sure. It turned into, again, each of these things could be a podcast in and of themselves. So I'm going to try to make it short, but ask me any questions that are not clear. It turned into a seven-year saga of trying to get my aunt her get that literally went all the way up to, at the time, Rogovaj Yosef Zatzal was alive. And he saw my aunt's case and he said, this woman should be free without question. What What is this schlepping? What are they doing? But obviously her ex, or yeah, her ex was pushing this off, pushing that off. They let him leave the country, even though there was the Tzavi Kul which means he wasn't supposed to leave the country because he was a flight risk and he was in the middle of a court case and left her in Aguina. Long story short. Well, can I ask you a question on this before we get to the conclusion? Because Rav Obadia said that this woman should obviously be free. Did anybody disagree with that? And I'll, I'll tell you what I'm asking, because if the husband doesn't give a get, she's not free, whether she should be free or not free. And there's nothing really that, barring some extreme halachic measures, that good-willed rabbis can really do in a situation like that. So what did he mean, this woman should be free, and how were you disappointed by what was going on? Because if the guy's not giving a get, as terrible as that is, I'm not sure that Rav Avadi could do anything about that. So, good question, and I will explain. Um, because he had a tzavi kuv on him, which means he's not allowed to leave the country, until the case is settled, neither party can leave the country. He asked for that tzav to be lifted and for him to leave the country. We said, you know, my aunt's side said, he will not come back. You cannot lift the tzav. So they said, okay, you know what? We'll have him sign a ketvu utnu. Ketvu utnu means if I don't come back, you can be my shaliyah, right? Meaning I'm going to go, I'm going to come back, but if I don't, you can give her the get with a shaliyah. So he signed that paper. So that's a good thing. That's actually okay. Lo and behold, he does not come back. We say, Sababa, give her the get. Solves the problem. We go to the court and say, give him the get. And they say, we lost the paper. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you at all. I am not kidding you at all. We lost the paper. We said, what do you mean you lost the paper? We can't find it. When you say the court, are you referring to the secular court or are you referring to the rabbinic Beit Din? No, the Beit Din. The Beit Din of Yerushalayim tells us that they can't find the document that he signed. And therefore, we are completely out of luck because they let him leave the country. So you ask where I got, how, how I became who I am? This is, this is, I was there. I saw this happen. So again, to make a long story longer, we actually had to go to the Supreme Court and force them to find a copy of this document. 
somehow to go through the archives. Shoshana, something about this just seems so strange that the Supreme Court, by telling them produce the document, is implying, obviously, that there is a copy. Does that mean the Beitin was simply refusing to move heaven and earth in order to look for this important document? Was there some reason why the Beitin was saying they don't have it when the Supreme Court says, well, you have to have it somewhere? If it were truly lost, then the Supreme Court telling them to produce it shouldn't do anything. We had to keep we had to keep sending in um, Bakashot, like to ask them, hi, where's the where's the mismah? Where's the mismah? Where's the document? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? You have to answer them. They answer them. We can't find it. The court says you better find it. Lo and behold, they find it. So, in fact, it was really there all along. They just didn't work hard to find it. Is that what happened? We believe that someone was paying them to not to not solve this case. Really? And I'll tell you why we believe that. At the end of the day, she gets her get. The shaliach was in France. They call her to come in from Muncie. They call her. They say, come, we're going to get your get. I was meeting with someone, an accountant, and I got a phone call from the Tawanet saying, I just got a message from the Beijing. Your aunt can come and get her get. I'm bawling my eyes out in front of this accountant. Who's, the poor man did not know what to do with himself. I'm crying my eyes out. He, he's like, what? Are you okay? My, my, my aunt's just going to get her get. That's so long. She's going to wait so long. And he's like, your aunt? Like, it was something out of, of a movie. I was like, never mind. Anyway, we get to the court. She comes in for months. We get to the court and they say, the Shuliach's in France. We can't help you. I'm confused. The Shaliach was in France, was going to come to Israel? Like, what? The Shaliach lived in Israel. But that weekend that they invited my aunt to come get the get, he was in France. Oh. Yeah. So, so, so something's going on here. You think? So because it was one specific Shaliach, he has to be that man. Imagine, he could have died, he could have whatever, but that anyway. Because the get refuser had appointed that man as his potential Shaliach if he doesn't show up. Exactly. Therefore, only he can give the get in your, I guess, ex-uncle's absence. Imagine, Scott, like seeing your freedom two feet in front of you, but someone keeps putting something in front of you to prevent you from getting it. Every step that they put in front of us was like a knife in my heart. I never, ever expected this, ever. You know, you think you go to a, a Bedin and you're going to see tzedek and you're going to see compassion and you're going to see Torah. I can't describe to you the levels of pain and and devastation. And I'm not being at all exaggerative of how my feelings were. The actual pain at what was being not done in what I expected a bed dean would be. And during these years, by the way, this took years. During these years, I met people, activists, MKs, rabbis, Rebbitsons, all types of people that I went to for help to explain what's happening. Tell me, explain to me what's happening here. What am I missing? Why is this so hard? And I learned more about Jewish divorce and marriage than I ever, ever, ever wanted to know. And I learned that there are really, really good people out there. And there are people who really don't care. And there are people who profit off of people suffering. In your experience, Shoshana, and obviously this is a subjective call, but along with the lack of justice that was taking place, was there any compassion for the situation or was it dismissive? What was the general feeling that you got? So the judges themselves, the three Dianim that we had in front of us, I mean, at one point, Rav Amar was one of our judges, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And I literally, I did something you're not supposed to do. And I walked all the way up to the judge's table and I looked at Rav Amar 
and I'm crying. I'm, I'm just bawling. And I said to him, you have to help her. She's raising five kids by herself. He's left the country. What more do you want? Why can't you just use the Saudi, uh, the Kedula Tunum? Like, why are you making this so hard? She extends her trip. He comes back from France. They do the ceremony. I stayed in the room. You're not supposed to stay in the room. I, I said to them, I'm not leaving. Stay in the room. They do the whole thing. They finish the ceremony. The ceremony where the shaliach gives the get to your aunt. Gives the get. So the strange man is releasing my 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 aunt from her from her marriage. Whatever. They look at my aunt who at this point is sixty years old and says, "We'll send you the certificate of divorce in the mail." I said to them, "Oh, we are not leaving without the certificate of divorce because you know you'll keep the get. So there's no proof that she's divorced." So they say, um, "Anyway, she can't get married for ninety days. She's sixty. She hasn't seen this man in over five years, and they're worried that she may be pregnant." Okay. Scott, they said, we'll send the, t- the tilda in the mail. They give us Psakdin that yes, there is a there is a get, but we're not going to send tilda until financial matters or this or that and the other thing. I'm just going to tell you, it took three years for us to get the tildat gerushin after the get. Can you explain what they meant by that? Because halachically, once she has the get, any financial matters are completely irrelevant when it comes to her status as being a divorcee. There's nothing at all to talk it about. It was all garbage. It was garbage. It was garbage. How do I know it's garbage? Because it was rough Lau, and I will give credit where credit is due. After three years, we finally got back to the Jerusalem Beddin, to the Court of Appeals, to say, where is the Tehudat? three years ago. Where is it? So he says... Just so I know, which Rav Lau? The first Rav Lau or the, current, or his son? the current Rav Lau. The current chief rabbi, okay. Current chief rabbi, he said to me, don't worry, we're going to take care of this. I said to him, I have heard this before. I'm really sorry. I don't believe it. Kvotorav, I just, I'm not leaving here. And he said, and he turned, actually switched to English. And he said to me, I promise you, you will have an answer in two weeks. I promise you. He sent, he sent it to us. We got it. And when I saw him at least a year later, he remembered the case. And he said to me, you know that there's still people trying to overturn that decision in the Beijing. Unbelievable. Wow. He told me I shouldn't go public because it could ruin my aunt's chances of, not her chances, but her, he felt that there were people who were still, Ravlan told me this, that there are people still trying to overturn it. I don't know why. I don't know who was in charge. I don't know. But for my story, this was not me, right? I was not the Aguna, but I was there experiencing it firsthand. And I think for women who are in this position, experiencing it firsthand, most often they don't, they're not in a position of strength. Right. I have a good marriage. I have a wonderful husband. I have an amazing family. I am not suffering in any way. And so someone who sees it firsthand usually doesn't have the strength to then go out and fight because that's their life. You know, my aunt had to make a choice. She had to be strong for her children. She could not take that fight on. And if you had looked at her, you would never know how she was suffering. You wouldn't know because she chose every single day to be happy. I was able to be angry in that Dean, when I was sitting there, I had a choice to make. I felt like, am I staying in this village? Am I staying here? Or I'm finding apathy and chaos. And so Rav Avadia, as I said to you, Rav Avadia said she should be free. You should use a food new. But unfortunately, he went into the hospital and passed away. Never came out of the high fell when Glasswell never came out and never wrote down his psaac. So then I was told by his daughter, don't worry, my brother is going to be the next chief rabbi. He knows how my father felt about it. He's going to take care of it. He did nothing. 
That's what I meant when I said we went to, went all the way to the chief rabbis. Because one chief rabbi, Rav Yitzchak Yosef, absolutely ignored us completely and made it more difficult for us. Rav Lau, in the end, helped. So you could say you have two models here. One where I was completely devastated from and, and shocked and appalled, and the other who actually helped. And so you said, you know, do, do you feel there's more one or the other? I think those in power mostly want to stay in power. And I think, unfortunately, that is a very strong pull. I think that we have an issue of control. You know, we've spoken about this before, Scott, but religion and politics do not mix. It makes both terrible and, and injustice grow. So here I am having to make a decision, kind of like, what am I going to do? I want to ask you a couple of questions before we move on to how this affected you personally. Now, I agree that religion and politics do not mix. And I also agree that too often that makes religion about power. I don't understand how that relates to a specific get case in this particular circumstance. What does it have to do with religion and power? Sure, because I think you know that here, Diane are political positions. They are paid religious positions where until 2011, not one woman had any say in the entire process of how any Dianim were elected, right? Because women can't be Dianim. And until 2011, there were no women on the committee to elect the Dianim. So what was happening was this guy says, you vote for my brother. I'll vote for your uncle. We'll both vote for this guy's grandfather. And that was an old boys club. And the same people and the same families kept getting elected regardless of whether they were right for the job or not. So in 2011, Limol did not, Eliza Levy and another woman that I'm completely blanking on, I apologize. These are Knesset members. Knesset members who said, look, it's not a religious position to be on the committee to elect judges. Therefore, we can put women onto this committee because half of the people in your courts are women. (laughs) There should be women involved in this and also professionals, by the way. Meaning on the committee now, they were going. there had to be lawyers, there had to be a toe in it, there had to be female something, forgot. But basically, there had to be three or four out of 11, which isn't, by the way, a tremendous amount, but three or four out of 11 had to be women. That was a law passed in 2011. And then things started to shift. Then you started to have people who were qualified for the job. Then you started to have people. So when you ask me about, about like, what does it have to do with politics, it has everything to do with politics. Because if you are giving religious positions that should be based on qualifications, it should be based on who is right for that job to somebody's brother, uncle, and cousin, that is a very big problem. That's not about religion anymore. It sounds to me that given what you said, that the committee now must have by law four women, that's what you said, four women out of 11 is the legal requirement. It seems to me, speaking without knowledge of the inside workings of this, that it should be six out of 11 or more, simply because given, I don't mean it should be equal, because particularly in the case of get refusal, because women are at the disadvantage according to Jewish law, therefore in appointing the judges, and appointing the judges is not a religious position per se, there's no impediment to women being part of that halakhically, we should at least there give women, so to speak, the advantage in appointing judges who will be sympathetic to these cases as opposed to the kinds of judges that you came into contact with. I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you and I agree with you more, for more than that, because it's not enough to be sympathetic. It, it also ha- you have to have the halakhic knowledge and the understanding that halakha actually works better than we allow it to work. I started to say this at some point. I don't remember exactly, but I have found in my work 
that halacha is a lot more compassionate than human beings. It's a lot more flexible than human beings are. We get stuck in our mindsets and in our political stances. Halakha is not political. Halakha is not, it's not bias in that way. And we, but we human beings are. And you need people to understand dyna human dynamics and marriage dynamics to be able to sit and use halakha and social structures and understanding of the way people are to actually live halakha. The other question I want to ask before going forward with your own personal story, Shoshana, is almost a detail, but I think it's important because I'm very curious about this. Rabbi Lau said, don't talk about this. So why are you talking about why it? Why am I talking about it? <laughs> he didn't really want me to put in any Hebrew papers or to bring it to the fore in the Knesset because he just felt at that time, and this was a number of years ago already, that it was too fresh and too fragile. I don't, I, at this point, that I don't think there's any issue. There isn't an issue, meaning she has a kosher get. And she has, a, she has a certificate of divorce. But he was concerned that politically, that we get back into the politics of these things, right? She has a kosher gut. There's no question. But politically speaking, he didn't want them to make problems for her. He didn't want them to, to, to make issues for her. And, and the fact that a rabbi is able to say, this is broken, this is broken, and yet I need you to play along. Do you understand, like, the madness yeah. of it? I understand. It's madness. Going back to what you said before about the nepotism, I say this, Rabbi Lau is obviously one of the heroes of this particular story, and yes. I nevertheless assert with regret that I don't think that Rabbi Lau should ever have been appointed chief rabbi the same way I think that Rabbi Yosef should never have been appointed chief rabbi. Simply the fact that these are the sons of two former chief rabbis gives the impression, and maybe more than the impression, that this is an old boys club, that the only people qualified are people already in the club. And even if, in theory, and I don't know who's the most qualified, but even if, in theory, these two people are the most qualified to be the chief rabbi, nevertheless, the same way that witnesses can't be related, as a political matter, as a smart social matter, we should have said, we're sorry, you are the most qualified candidates, but we're disqualifying you so the people not in the club can have a shot also. I heard that in line for the next chief rabbi position, the Sephardi chief rabbi, two of the leading candidates apparently are Aryeh Deri's brother and Rabbi Yosef's brother. Those are two of the main candidates, so I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen, but... The saga continues. Shoshana, let's get back to your story. You said you had a crisis and you said, do I continue following this religion? Do I continue being a halachic Jew given everything I've gone through? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's no, what I no, understood. It really came down to being able to separate between religion and those who I thought were meant to represent that religion, right? Because I thought walking into Bedin that I was in a place that was upholding Torah. I thought I was walking into a living, breathing Torah space that was going to show how Halachas worked and changed things and made things better. And it was a real shock. As I told you, I became religious. I became religious at 18. I, I chose this life. And I believe in its beauty and, it, and in Halacha and Torah. And I know, I know that Torah is better far better than what I've seen it, it play out in action. And that's why, by the way, the, one of the first pieces I ever wrote, I told you I started writing during this whole thing, it's called The Hijacking of Judaism, Its Victims and Consequences. Because that is, that was what I was, that's what I was watching happen. I felt my beautiful religion was being hijacked and taken over and distorted and people were being hurt. And that there were massive consequences to this. And if you go back to my blog of the Times of Israel, you can go back to 2011, I think. I have documented this slide to the extreme when it comes to Aguinot, 
when it comes to the erasure of women, when it comes to women's voices being marginalized and shifted out. And I think we are taking a very, very dangerous turn in orthodoxy. And I'm speaking out because I love Judaism. I love Torah. And I decided at that moment, like, am I going to just give up and walk away because it's too hard? Or am I going to fight? Some people don't like the word fight, but I'm sorry. You fight for the things you believe in. You fight for your family. You fight for your values. And that's how I see myself. I am fighting for the things that I value and I love. I want my children to love Judaism. I want them to have a place. I want to have a place. And I want Hashem to have a place. I feel like a lot of these things have actually taken God out of the equation. I don't see a lot of God when I see these actions. And I think that is a tragedy for all of us. I definitely agree with a lot of that. We sometimes forget that God is part of this equation too. I've mentioned this before. Rav Shagar at one point writes in one of his books or in one of his essays that a certain person came to him with a particular question. And his response was in that particular case, what is the will of God in this particular case? Because the halacha seemed to say one thing, but he was arguing that, is that really the will of God here? Not because the halacha wouldn't say that, but you have to take that into, make a cheshbon of that. You have to take that into account. It has to be part of your consideration. Not only what do I think the simple halacha is, but how do I understand the will of God in this particular case? That is a slippery slope because it can it's turn into so anything, important. but it's at the, it can't be ignored either. No, I, I think that people forget and, and and I think it's sad for us as Jews. And I don't mean sad like, oh, that's sad. I mean, tragic. And and by the way, one of the things that I believe needs to be put really put back into the dining training or put into the dining training, when, when everyone's studying in the mirror and studying Gemara, why don't they study Nach? Why don't they look and see what happens when we don't behave in a way that Hashem wants? You know, you study quotes in the Gemara and you don't study the context that those quotes came from. What was happening at the time? What was going on? What are we learning from this? It's so sanitized from its context that it's lost its meaning. And I see that playing out in the Beidin. And, and I feel like just to pull forward a little bit, you know, how did I get to where I am? Because I saw that the leadership was just minutak, like disconnected from the Makol. I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean. And this to me was like kind of like the nail in my coffin. And of like thinking that leadership was going to be the answer. And I used to do that a lot, Scott. I would go to leadership. I would go to rabbis and I would say, these are the problems that help us fix them. And this, so I was sitting with a, a rabbinic figure that everybody here would probably know his name. And I was speaking to him about two things, the erasure of women and Agonot, which are basically my two, my two, uh, I can't speak French, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yes. I said to him, you know, why don't we use the halachic tools? Why don't we work on the Agunis, the Aguna crisis, which is such a, a blight on Judaism? Why don't we do something like systemic to make sure it doesn't happen? Like we can solve this systemically if we decide to come together. And he says to me, let me tell you a story. And I was sitting across from him, not even on Zoom, like a real across the table conversation. He said, let me tell you a story. I said, okay. He said, a woman comes to me a few weeks after her marriage. I knew her and says, "My, I think my husband is gay. He won't sleep with me. And I said to her, you know, we went and we did investigating and it turns out he was gay in high school and he was gay now. But maybe I said, he wasn't gay the day you got married. And I said to him, what? Why would you do that? Why would you look for, I don't understand. Like it's clear, like they're married a few weeks. He 
Except the fact that he's gay, he will not sleep with her. Why don't why don't you free her? You can free her. Let me just, just explain what a mekachtaut is. Yeah. A mekachtaut means when something is sold under false pretenses, the sale is inherently invalid. So in the case of a marriage, which halachically uses some of the same formulations as acquisitions, if it's called a mekachtaut, which means that the wife was not informed about something very important, which would have made her not get married to the husband in the first place, the marriage is nullified. She does not require a get in a situation like that, just to understand what's going on here. So Correct. you said, why Meaning is this not a mekachtaut? No, right. There was not a valid marriage because... He, he it doesn't require a get because they were not actually married. So I said to him, is this like a clear case? Why would you seek to keep her chained to something like this. And he says, ah, we don't end Jewish marriage so quickly, he says to me. And I looked at him and I said, this is what you call Jewish marriage? It was such a blow. Can I ask you what he was trying to say? What point was he trying to make in telling you that story? Scott, he went and he literally went to three different sociologists, psychologists, and looked for one that said it's possible to be gay and then not be gay, and then be gay again. Out of three, he found one that said, yeah, I guess it could happen. And on that response, kept her chained to this van. She wound up having IVF with this guy, and then buying her freedom years later up for $50,000. I mean, the guy wouldn't give her a get. He wouldn't give her a get. Yeah. So I, I looked at him, and I he was proud of this story. And I said to him, I don't understand. This isn't Jewish marriage. And I realized at that moment, Scott, it's not about the person. It's not about the woman. It's about my ideal of what I think should be. And everything is sacrificed underneath that. It was more important for him to prove that he's homophobe also, that somebody could be gay and then not gay. And it was more important for him to say Jewish marriage is strong. And to call something like this a Jewish marriage, when he said that to me, that was that was it. Like I was done. I said... This was somebody who everyone looks at as a hero of Aguno. And so for me, I I remember sitting there and just feeling like I wanted to crawl out of my skin because she didn't matter at all. At all. And that was devastating. Was he suggesting in the larger context, just to bring it open, that nothing systemic can be changed because Jewish marriages are too strong. We cannot have anything systemic that would undermine that concept that Jewish marriages are very difficult to break? Is that what he was sort of saying in this? Yes. Yes. And he said that everyone should sign the prenup. He looked at the prenup, the halachic prenup, as a solution, which we know is not a hundred percent. It's not much not a solution. It's not. I mean, it's great. And everybody should sign it. It's not not a solution. Let's, let's, Let's clarify that. It's not bad. It's a good thing. No, no, it's a great thing. Yeah. But it's not a solution. Right. It's avoided a lot of gay refusal. There's no question. But often someone who's going to sign it already is not as, you know, one of those red flaggers. Everybody should sign it because everybody needs to sign it. I mean, my kids sign it. There's no question. But at the end of the day, it's not helping someone who hasn't. Meaning Allah can't help someone who hasn't signed it. And it's not going to help someone who's got a lot of money or who just would rather sit in jail. At the end of the day, that's why Hashem gave us Allah. But the rabbis are refusing to use it. To use what do you it mean that's that. why Hashem gave us halacha? What do you mean by that, Shoshana? Shem gave us halachot to deal with when people do wrong things. That's why we have it, right? Like, at the end of the day, look, Rav Ovadia, God bless him, he freed Aguno. He did. He used halacha. Rav Kraus, Zatel, used halacha. Rav Natal Greenbat used halacha. And there are great, there are great rabbis who do, but they are far, far, far too often 
shunned. They are not accepted. And these women are called adulteresses if they use up sat given to them by rabbis. And to me, like, it's like you have people who mamash do not know. They don't know halacha. They just don't. And they're like, oh, no, that's, you can't do that. Oh, no. We have a problem in our community where we have a lack of leadership. And we have people who think they know what leaders know. It's a very strange conundrum, um, which is kind of why I, not kind of, this is why I work with the community. Meaning what we do when, when Chokhmat Nashim advocates for change, we advocate for change on a communal level. Because at the end of the day, any rabbi can say what he wants. Any law can be made. You know that it's illegal to erase women in this country. In this country, Israel, it's illegal to erase women. It's done every single day. Because at the end of the day, it's a community-based decision. And if the community accepts it, it's going to continue to happen. So we work with the community. We say, here are the issues with these things. Here are ways we can do things differently. Here are the suggestions we have on a local level, on a national level, on a communal level, and here's how you could be part of it. With that comes actual lasting change. If you look what happened, I think, I don't even know, two years ago at this point on, on Instagram where, where women started advocating, all of a sudden, everyone, people who didn't know what an Aguna was, everybody knew what, what it was like overnight, you know? We have so much power in the community. We have to use it. I think we have to also remember that laws are only as powerful as the communities in which they exist, not as the police. I'll give you a, a sort of silly example, but it showed me that the fact that a law is on the books doesn't necessarily have such a big effect if people aren't willing to implement it. From Ape Shemesh Bet, there was some major demonstration going on there six, seven, eight years ago. I don't remember anymore exactly when. And I had heard about it. So I went down there with a camera or a phone, whatever, to take pictures. I was kind of curious about what was going on. And as I started filming, people throwing eggs and rocks at the cars passing by, I was surrounded by a group of people who tried to grab my phone, and someone threw a rock at me, which I picked up and next day brought to the police station. What was their response? Their response was, what were you doing there? Basically, the answer was I was being a punk. It was probably stupid. It, right. I was looking for trouble. But you know what? That's not the response you should have, even though yeah. you're right. I wasn't helping anything. But nevertheless, the fact that the response of the police to people throwing rocks and a guy taking pictures of people throwing eggs is, well, why were you there? You know, we'll take your name down if you like, but you shouldn't have been there. Is kind of showing the point that laws are only as powerful as the community that's willing to implement them for the most 100%. part. Obviously, they're extremes, but... Like, this is a good example of that. And if communities aren't willing to protest the erasure of women, women sitting in the back of buses and so forth, it doesn't matter if it's the law or not. The people on that bus are going to be the ones who control 100%. that narrative. You know, it, it's interesting because, as I said, when I started writing about this, there were two major reactions that people had to me. One is, oh, it's just a few people. Why are you making a big deal? Why are you giving, a, you know, you hate parade and blah, blah, blah. And it'll never happen by me. And I believe that both of these things have been true and false, right? It is only expanded. It has only gotten worse. And it is every time I go speak to someplace, whether it's Renana or LA or New Jersey, and people say to me, it'll never happen here. Inevitably, I get within a month, a message or a phone call. You will never believe what just happened. I'm like, it happened here. Me, but I'll believe it. <laughs> just tell me. Try. <laughs> just tell just me. Just try me. Yeah. Try me. <laughs> and I think, you know, to be honest, without being too self-important, I think as Jews, we're always taught to 
do a cheshbon nefesh and to look around and say, Hashem, what are you trying to tell me, right? And I think having being put in a place where women and girls were erased to such extremes and having had first-hand encounter in the big dean, even though I wasn't being donated a divorce, and to be there with Oropa, no, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I do feel like Hashem is like, yeah, I want you to do something. I want you to say something. And I think that each one of us as religious Jews, have, I believe part of being a religious Jew is taking responsibility for what's around you, right? And I'm not saying everybody has to do what I'm doing. I know that everybody has their own issues, talents, uh, abilities. But I think, again, part of being a religious Jew, part of part of being a religious Jew, part of Torah is, you'll say the Hebrew and I'll say the English. You don't have to finish the job and you can't walk away from it either. Right. Right. All of these things I take seriously. And I don't think I can walk away when I see something happening. And I, I, and that's another reason, by the way, that we go in with the community because we, there is strength in the community. There are, if you want a Judaism where your kids are going to have a place where they're going to feel good about being Jewish, where they're going to want their children to, to break, carry it on to their children, look around and ask yourself, are we heading in that direction? Are you, do you feel good about putting your daughter under a chuppah? And not knowing what's going to happen in five, ten years, do you feel good about the textbooks that don't have women in it? Do you feel good about Tonka Shabbos ads that have two men and boys? Like, do you feel good that this is part and parcel of our Orthodox community now, or do you think, hey guys, maybe, maybe we need to reevaluate, maybe we need to to look and to do something? I don't like when people like raise their hands. The worst thing for me is like, eh, like nothing I could do. Where could I go? I, I. There's nothing worse in life. Don't do that if you ever meet me. <laughs> I can't stand it. Like, there's always something we could do, whether it's talking, whether it's writing a letter, whether it's making your own magazine, whatever it is on your level. Join a bot, bring a female speaker in, have sign a prenup, have a prenup party. Like, there are things that every single person can do. And I think that that is really, really important. And I believe as Jews, we know that that is, we're so, we do things all the time. We can do one more. Shoshana, I want to ask you, Perhaps an unfair question, but I'm curious how you'll answer this one. I am sure that there are listeners now who are saying, Shoshana, you're full of garbage because you're talking about Gdole Hador, great men who have studied Torah and Halakha for decades, and you're telling them that they're not acting in accordance with the will of God. How can you, Shoshana Kishjaskal, who is not one of the Gdole Hador when it comes to Halakha, tell people who are that they don't know what they're talking about? How do you answer that question? I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I sat with a Godolador, who I won't name, you'll understand why in a minute, who we went to for two things. One, he did for us wonderfully uh, and very nicely, and I'm very proud of it. Um, and the other thing, when I asked him, I said, you know, what about this erasure of women and girls? Would you also put out a statement about that? He laughed. I said, why are you laughing? He said, of course it's Mishagaz. Of course it's Narishkite, he says to me. He said, but you think I'm in charge? He said, if I write a letter about this, all the other work I do, kids at risk, mental health, this and that, gone. He said, the Askanim rule the street. He admitted or blamed, I don't know which is the right way to say it, that other people, not himself, were in charge of these things and that it was absolute nourishment, but he couldn't write it down. So I'm not saying that they don't know what they're talking about. They just can't do 
what I can do because they are afraid of losing the uh, either their authority or the other work that they do, right? I know they don't believe it. I know they think it's Narishkeit. I've talked to them. I, I think that's something maybe people don't really know about the work that I do is that I've done this work. I have gone and spoken to them. I know what they're thinking about these things, but they can't or won't. And so if they can or won't, and if there's no ish, you know, but Makom Makom she she ish, right. You don't know I had to get that in there. That's fair enough. I'm going to ask you a personal question now. You talked about how you decided that you weren't going to let this experience, this disappointment with authority figures, with Gedolim, with the Beitin, you weren't going to allow it to impact your Judaism in a negative way in the sense of leaving altogether. It might change your Judaism. It might change what you do and the way you look at things, but you decided to stay. How did you handle the disappointment. To me, disappointment, and I mentioned this in my introduction, to me, disappointment is one of those emotions which is just so jarring. It can really shake a person to his or her core. Dealing with disappointment, I was expecting something. I was looking forward to something. I knew something to be true. And then the ground was taken out from underneath me. The story, The Emperor's New Clothes, with which we opened up this discussion, it concludes with a child pointing out the obvious. The emperor has no clothes. And sometimes I feel in stories like this that we want to yell out, the rabbi has no clothes. Maybe we should take that image out of our minds. Nevertheless, how did you handle that disappointment, the emotional part of it? I think that if I hadn't developed my own relationship with Hashem, meaning if I was from from birth and I inherited a relationship with Hashem and I was told certain things, that it would be a lot harder for me to stand after wave after wave after wave but because my relationship with Hashem is strong my own personal relationship I don't feel anymore that these people represent that relationship right meaning other people who have been raised on Das Torah or raised on that rabbis represent God I think have a harder time because they can't separate between the rabbi and God I can I do it's the only way I can continue for me as much as I do have respect and covered for rabbinic figures, they don't represent God to me. And so when I'm disappointed by one, I'm disappointed in this person, but I'm not disappointed in Hashem. And I think that's the only thing that's really kept me going and enabled me to say things can be better. And I feel very strongly, you know, it's not for nothing that, that, that we're told every one of us stood at Sinai. I don't think it's just a matter of a nice anecdote. I think it's actually really deep. And I think that means if each one of us stood at Sinai and each one of us owned the Torah and each one of us have the responsibility to live it and to make it alive in the world. And so men, at the end of the day, a rabbi is a man, were disappointing me and not living up to what I expect because I expected him to live Torah will not take away Torah from me. It may take away authority from me. It may enable me to realize, and it does. I mean, look, Scott, at the end of the day, I have a lot more freedom than people who are beholden to a certain Rebbe or a certain AM because I don't, I'm not beholden and I'm not subject to that authority. Um, and people may think it's out of chutzpah, but it's really actually not out of chutzpah. It's out of deep amuna in Hashem himself as opposed to in people and in men. And I would say, by the way, that's why a lot of people do leave the faith when they're disappointed because there's too much overlap in a rabbinic figure and God 
rabbinic figure and Torah, because then when you can't separate, so then you have to walk away. And I think, by the way, it is a tremendous disservice that we do to children and and congregants when we when we equate every mitzvah with every other mitzvah or every minhag with a mitzvah because it's like one of, I once heard someone tell me that you know they were told that if they ever turned on a light on Shabbos like lightning would strike them and they turned on a light on Shabbos by accident and lightning didn't strike them and that was the beginning of the end I've been lied to I've been hoodwinked what is true what is not true and it's just an unraveling string and and we need to be able, we have to trust people Judaism is a religion and responsibility. We have to trust that people are going to have a relationship with Hashem, not like hoodwink them into like with with these. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm getting far off your question. But no, this is very good. I think what you're saying is very important. You're absolutely right. And I'll take what you said even further, if you don't mind. When you mentioned we were all at Har Sinai, and what you say, I think, is absolutely true. There's also a Gemara in Masechet Nida which talks about how every baby in the womb is taught the entire Torah and forgets it when it comes out of the womb. Rav Soloveitchik asks, why is that so? Why, what was the point if you forget it the moment that you're born? So Rav Soloveitchik's answer to that is that when the baby is born, it forgets all the Torah, but it's still there. Meaning whenever somebody learns something, that person is relearning something that still exists on some level in the subconscious. If I want to take that not further, but in a slightly different direction, you could say that every person has the whole Torah and it's just a matter of bringing it out. It's not only a matter of learning something which was never there. It's a matter of bringing out which is already implicit in your consciousness. Somehow deep inside of all of us is that understanding of what Torah is all about. And of course, that relates to this concept of the unmediated encounter with Torah, the unmediated encounter with God, which we all should and do have if we look for it which reminds me of that story of Rav Shagar that I mentioned a little while ago, that he said, what is the will of God? And he ended that anecdote by saying to the person who asked him the question, in this particular case, whatever it was, he said, it's not that I don't think they care what the will of God is. I don't think they understand that God has a will at all. All of what I'm saying, I think, is a way of expressing a change in my own thinking over the past decade or so, which is that I believe that there are people who have an exceptional knowledge of Torah, an exceptional knowledge of halacha, and because halacha is normative and God-given, those are the people we need to go to in order to know what the halacha is in any given case. We can't just decide it on our own. I also believe, however, that they do not necessarily have exceptional insight into other aspects of the divine. They might— but it's not necessarily so just because they are halachic scholars per se. Sometimes we forget that halachic scholars are not necessarily the most godly people out there, and yet we put them on a pedestal as if they inevitably are. We have to have trust that the halachic system is accurate. That's how it works. We have to have trust that the transmitters of that system are accurate. And chachamim is a real concept. We can't pretend it's not. But that's very different from putting rabbis on that pedestal to the degree that all we care about is getting a bracha from them. We live in Ramat Beit Shemesh. I see this all the time. People who never heard of the concept of asking a halachic shayla, nevertheless, will go to every single rav they know for a bracha and for advice about what color to paint their house. And I think that we have to understand that our relationship with God is unmediated. We have a direct relationship with God that doesn't need a rabbi or anybody else to intervene. Our relationship with halacha sometimes needs a book or a rabbi or some way to understand what does Jewish law require in this particular case. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that our relationship with God is somehow impaired or, 
Let's take it further that just because somebody is a big rabbi or just because somebody is a Tommy Chacham, that person by definition has a closer connection with the divine. That I don't believe. I think there are all sorts of people out there who do not have that special knowledge, who are very likely far closer to God than those people who do have that special knowledge. And also the reverse is true. There are some people who have that special knowledge of Jewish law who are very close to God. But we have to stop tying them together because as soon as we start saying a halachic scholar is by definition the best person in our community and the only person who really understands God, at that point, we are allowing them to have much more power than they probably should. Yes. We're giving them way too much. Practically speaking, if someone is having some sort of crisis of faith or disappointment in leadership, I, I think it's important also to say this. There are rabbis who I trust. There are rabbis who I, I go to. Absolutely. Me too. I'm saying this is not to impinge the authority right. of rabbis or to say they're not good. Of course not. I'm saying, but for someone who is dealing with disappointment, I would say find someone in whom you can trust, but remember they are a person still, right? Like, I think it's really important. And, and I'm sure, Scott, you know people that you could recommend, and I know people that I could recommend. I always like to say, like, you know, if you're having this specific issue, you can reach out, and I'm happy to do my best. I don't live in America anymore, so don't ask me about America. But in Israel, there are people who I would send people to who are, by the way, doing amazing, amazing work to help people in these areas of finding Rabbanim. And, and, and look, I answer a lot of of um, people who come to me for, you know, I, I'm in a gunna and, and I'm being kept in a gunna and nobody's helping me and I don't know what to do. And I will turn her to people who can look in her marriage and see if her marriage can be annulled or if they can help her get a get either way. Or someone who's asking, you know, whatever it is, I answer these questions all the time because people know my name and they they hope I can help. And and I'm, I'm happy to do it here in this case as well. But I think I would just want anyone who is feeling this, you know, who turned into this podcast to say, what do I do about my my feelings so hurt um, that you're not alone and that it doesn't mean you have to throw away everything. Rabbis in the end of the day are people. And and just as you'll find some who unfortunately will disappoint you, you will also find some who will restore your faith and just try not to walk away and, and to remember that um Life is, is a journey and you always have a direct connection with Hashem and you do not need an intermediary to open up and talk and to refill your heart and your faith. Thank you for that, Shoshana. That's a beautiful way to conclude this discussion. One last thing. Can we talked briefly about the Chochmat Nishim podcast? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> a fantastic podcast. I hope everyone tunes into it. What's on the docket for this coming episode? Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think actually we're going to be talking about our latest project, which is called Rate My Beit Dean. Um, it's actually a project that came out of hundreds, literally hundreds of interviews with men and women who have gone through the divorce experience, many of whom were Agunot and some Agunim for a number of years. We're talking about exactly, it actually really fits in well, about when rabbis or rabbinic figures or Dianim disappoint us, what can we do? Where can we go? Because in the Beitin system, there's actually no oversight. I don't know if anybody realizes that. But every Beitin operates, uh, I mean, in Israel, there's, there's it's one thing, but in America and in the diaspora, it's another. There's no oversight at all. And so you can't go to anyone to say, hey, this isn't right, or what do I do, or somebody treated me wrong, or how do we fix the system? So we've actually, a little chutzpah but I think with a lot of wonderful intention, created something called Rate My Beitin, which allows people to rate the Beitin that they've been through and allows other people to choose because of those ratings. Do I want to go to this Beitin, or maybe I should try that Beitin? Um, also, what we'll be doing is helping Dayanim, because Dayanim learn halacha and they learn Dayanut, but they don't necessarily learn marriage counseling or mental illness 
or victimhood or abuse or what that looks like in a marriage. Um, and they're kind of ill-equipped sometimes to deal with the really tragic things that come in front of them sometimes. Um, and so we're pulling together professionals to create master classes so that Dianim and rabbis can actually learn these things and do better at the job that they are entrusted with. Um, we're really, really excited about the project. We're working with four organizations around the world. Um, and it's really one of a kind and directly because of what we were just talking about, Scott. This is exactly a result of this, is taking disappointment and pain and saying, okay, how can I help people? What can I do to change it? And God willing, with, with Hashem's blessings, we will make the system better. That's amazing. Okay. Coming up on the next episode of the Chachmat Nashim podcast, remember to subscribe today. Shoshana Keys to ask all. I really appreciate your being open and telling your story today. And it was great having you aboard. Thanks. Thank you so much, Scott. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.